you know, Alice said something in one of our episodes about how one of the things that unites us is we all suffer. You know, suffering is sort of a universal thing. And, you know, that's another example of that sort of vulnerability you talk about, being willing to say that, because that is such an opposite of our social media culture. Our social media culture is project happiness and perfection at all times. You know, like curate your Facebook pages, use the right filters on Instagram, like whatever it is. And I think we need community (laughs) in our country and probably just in our entire world more now than ever, because so many of the traditional communities people relied on have broken down. We just don't have them. And people are so isolated and alone. And why is depression surging? Why are people, why is suicide surging? You know, people feel so isolated and alone. And if we do in this podcast, look, the pie, it's crazy. Okay. It's just, it's insane. We never imagined. I mean, I thought maybe one day, you know, maybe we'll do this. will be really successful and a lot of people will listen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Never imagined the community aspect of it. And for me, as long as that exists, like, I don't care. Like if the numbers level off and, you know, we stop growing and we're no longer in the top, whatever, and we get surpassed by somebody else, as long as we have that community that is engaged and involved the way it is now, I will do this as, as long as they'll have us. That's Brett Talley, an attorney and the co-host of the Prosecutors and the Legal Briefs podcast. really heartens me for the future. You know, a a bunch of people will just be naysayers and say, we don't talk to each other anymore. And that might be the case, but I see so many pockets where there is honest dialogue in everything. I'm not just talking about true crime. I'm talking about life. You know, it's within your own family. It's with your significant other. It's with your friends. It's with your kids. It's with people you've never met on the internet. We are all human. We are all, you know, in this life together and we get this one life and it matters um, and, and every moment matters and we can choose to kind of take away from it or add to it. And I hope that, you know, the time that people choose to listen to our podcast is adding to it and that we're talking about something so much more than just true crime. It, it goes far beyond that. Uh, it goes back to the very humanity of each person and the dignity of each person and our ability to communicate with other humans in our life. And I I feel blessed to be part of those dialogues, you know, often uh, through the podcast. And I hope others um, are able to kind of join us for the ride and then extrapolate from the podcast to the rest of their life as well. That's Alice LaCour, also an attorney and Brett's co-host on The Prosecutors and the Legal Briefs. This is the second of two episodes with Brett and Alice. So if you haven't had the chance to listen to the first episode, I recommend you stop now, go back and listen to the first episode, then come back here. Brett and Alice started the highly rated Prosecutors podcast back in May of 2020, only a few months after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Brett grew up near Birmingham, Alabama, made his way to the University of Alabama, where he studied philosophy and history before going to and graduating from Harvard Law School. Brett began his career in private practice and also working as a clerk for federal judges. He also worked as a writer for political campaign before returning to government and working as a speechwriter for Ohio Senator Bob Portman. Brett has also held various legal positions within the state of Alabama and the Department of Justice. Brett is a natural storyteller and the author of his own nonfiction book on the paranormal history of Tuscaloosa, several novels, and he's contributed to several collections. One of his novels, That Which Should Not Be, was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award, the annual award for the top horror novels. Alice grew up in Austin, Texas, the daughter of immigrants, attended Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia where she studied economics before attending Yale Law School. Alice began her career as a federal law clerk in a district court 
and then an appellate court before holding various positions as a trial attorney and advisor to senior Justice Department officials and the criminal chief in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Alice is now a partner at a major law firm. Alice and Brett have both been involved in civil, criminal, and appellate litigation and bringing a unique perspective to true crime, both in terms of seeing cases through the eyes of lawyers and prosecutors. After years of talking about doing a podcast, The Prosecutors was born of Alice stopping sleeping after having a baby and finally having the time to start recording. They started The Prosecutors on their own, and it's grown into one of the top true crime podcasts in a short amount of time. In May of 2022, they started a second podcast, Legal Briefs, which explores the law and some more current cases. Today, we're going to talk about their backgrounds and their histories, what made them who they are, the community that's been built around their podcast, some of the value that comes from open debate, and some of the challenges in true crime podcasting, as well as what matters most to them. remember, it was one of your recent episodes, I think it was on the Adnan Said case, where I forget how you guys got to this topic, but Brett ended up telling this story about how he got kicked out of church. And I think, Brett, I sent you a message saying, oh, I had a very similar experience. And I remember, Alice, you said that you felt sorry for young Brett. And that was a moment for me, even though, you know, I wasn't talking to in that moment because my my church story was I was the guy who gave the youth Sunday sermon. I was highly involved in like fellowship of Christian athletes and all sorts of other things at that time. And I had asked a uh, I had asked a question in Sunday school that my Sunday school teacher couldn't answer. And so they got the director of the Sunday school to come in the next week. And instead of answering the question, what he said was the devil divides us. Like <laughs> literally looking right at me. And I was like, oh Okay. <laughs> but like in that moment, Brett, where like you told that story, not only m- my heart went out to you, I felt so connected to you in that moment in a way that I rarely do with people, you know, where I'm consuming the the product that they're they're at that. And I appreciate I appreciate that piece of it if it makes sense. I know yeah, it's I don't I mean, I don't know that any of that is intentional. I mean it's kinda like it just goes back to I am sure there are people who who would say like you shouldn't do that, right? I mean, there are just there are too many crazy people out there who will like hunt you down and and kill you if you open yourself up too much. Which is probably true. <laughs> and when we started the podcast, you know, like when we started the podcast, just used our first names, didn't use our last names, like didn't tell people exactly where we worked, and some of that was related to work itself. You know, tried to keep it a little little cabin, but I mean, I just to me. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I like people a lot. I love people and I love all sorts of different people and I like meeting different people. And I'm just all about sort of community. And the thing, one of the things I love about the podcast is the community kind of grew up around it. And you mentioned my son. I don't know that I intended to be so public with that, but I kind of, when it was happening, you know, I sent a message to some people. I was like, Hey, I just want to let you know. I mean, I think it was our patrons. We have like a Patreon page. And I was like, hey, I just want you guys to know like this is going on. I don't know what's going to be happening with the podcast for the next few months. And y'all are spending your money on this. Just it's fine. If, if you want to like, you know, deactivate your account for a couple months, that's fine. Don't know how much stuff's going to be coming out. Right. And their reaction was just so overwhelmingly the opposite of that. I mean, people are like upping their mm-hmm. Patreon thing. And it just it was so moving to me the way they responded that I just had to thank them and I had to thank them publicly in as public a way as possible because it meant so much to me and the community means a lot to me. And I just feel like with these people, I, I just, I, I can't help but be kind of just open with them about these things. And I think as Alice said, it goes to sort of why we're approaching things the way we are sometimes. And I think that's really important because I think there is this false narrative out there that 
and I don't even know where it comes from, but there are people who, who seem to believe it is possible to approach cases or podcasting or whatever with like no bias and no perspective. And just mm. put the facts out there, man. You know what I mean? I don't and think then, there. I don't think there are many things that you can, you know, approach with no bias because any conclusion any of us come to is based on the way we grew up and what inputs went in and our and experience and yeah. and yeah and and I think number one, I think that's good. I don't think it's a bad thing that you have perspective. And I don't think it's a bad thing that other people will have different perspectives. And I think if the more people understand why you look at something the way you do, why you look at a piece of evidence and you see it in a certain light, you know, if they understand you and why you look at that, they may actually see flaws in the way you're analyzing it. Right. Or maybe from their perspective, they will see it a different way. And, and the conversation is important to me too. Mm. So to me, the more it can be, this community of people talking about this stuff, going through it. It's one reason I really like our Facebook page. It's one reason I really like, as Alice said, doing the chats. You know, it's interesting to do the podcast and Alice and I are doing the podcast and see comments people are making because it sort of informs like what you're thinking. Like, oh, that's that's a different way of looking at it. And for me, I think basically it is just impossible for me to shut up. So I just <laughs> going, going to talk about sort of anything that's happened that I think is relevant. Oh, you're calm and quiet compared to Bob Mata of the Defense Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> he, he can he can out talk anyone, but you know it, it's so true. I, I when I was at the New York Times, I had this editor. I was a part of a um, I was brought in as a part of a diversity recruitment program where they took people right out of college and. He was, we were talking about like what, what could really be improved about the program. And he made this great point. He's like, the problem with diversity here at the Times, yeah, there are, there are racial, there are gender problems, but you know, look at your cohort. And there were 14 of us. And he was like, how many of you went to Ivy League undergraduates? And I wasn't one of them, but like most of them. And he's like, how many of you went to, you know, like, uh, you know, the vassars of the world, the really sort of good liberal arts schools. And we, we knocked those people off. And he's like, you're the only one who went to a state school. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. And he said that, like, you get more value. We get more value from bringing a white kid who's poor from Appalachia into the newsroom than we do for more bringing in more Harvard and undergraduates. And I was just thinking about that from the perspective of your community, that that diversity of ideas and diversity of thought probably brings so much value to what you do on a day-to-day basis. And, and before I had that conversation, I never really thought about diversity in that sense, or even just the fact that I, you know, I lived in the South, the North and, you know, the Southwest. And that informs me that, you know, and yeah, I was just wondering what, what you what your thoughts on that are. Well, I think one thing it does is it allows us to have a lot of expertise in a lot of strange places. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting. It is fascinating in so many ways. Number one, somebody on the gallery, which is our Facebook page, did just a post. It was like, what does everybody do? You know, what are your jobs? And there were like 500 responses. And there were people it was from every, you know, one person is a conductor in a, in a symphony, you know, and people were doctors and nurses and teachers and psychologists and farmers and ranchers and, you know, pilots. I mean, there was just everything. And I, I we did the Redonda Vaught case. And Redonda Vaught is a nurse who was charged with manslaughter because she gave the wrong drug to somebody and that person died. And we approached it very much from a legal perspective, because as we're lawyers, right? But we had so many people who were nurses who gave a different perspective and were able to inform that. So I thought, in the end, the coverage that we had of that, because of that different perspective and all those perspectives coming together, was much better. You know, I'm I'm from Alabama. I went to state schools my entire life until I went to Harvard. You know, Harvard was a really weird experience for me. I loved it. It must have been. Yeah, I mean, there weren't that many people like me there. You know what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. No, just the accent must have stood out. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember, I don't know if I've told this story in the podcast, but I'll never forget this one. This one girl was like, you know, there are classes you can take to get rid of your accent. <laughs> oh, I, I thought she was going to say, what language do you speak? <laughs> yeah, that as well. But yeah, and so 
Yeah, and I think that's really important. And it's like the Adnan thing. You know, people talk about, and I don't know the backgrounds of everybody who talks about Adnan Syed, but people talk about it all the time. And they always, when we were talking about that religious aspect, they always approach it from, well, he's not perfect, so therefore this must not have been important to him, right? And to me, that is just so absurd. Like, I can't, I can't believe anybody thinks that because coming from a very conservative religious background and not being perfect and experiencing the push and pull of society and being a teenager and, and everything else, but also really caring about your faith, to me, it makes complete sense that he could yeah. be passionate about his faith and be doing things that aren't, you know, in line with it. And I just think it's stuff like that. Like if you can bring a different view and just different experience, it, it's just so much more valuable and, and so much more thorough. And Alice, obviously, as she said, I mean, we're very different people. Alice has come from a completely different place than me. And I think that makes it much more interesting when the, when the two of us are talking about these sort of strange subjects. Alice, what is your background? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that um, my parents immigrated here from Taiwan. And so I, I'm Chinese and I grew up in Texas, you know, of all places and have parents who truly don't understand like what I do even today as like a, an attorney. They, you know, not joking. They really don't understand podcasts. They don't listen to podcasts. And so I kind of very much grew up in a, you know, dual life growing up. We had, you know, our Chinese community where all we did was speak Mandarin Chinese. And, you know, my my parents uh, only understood kind of the Chinese way of life. And there was nothing about my mainstream public high school that they understood. What was prom? Are you kidding me? Why would we buy, you know, a dress? That dress is much too short. Like, you are not allowed to look at a boy until you're 35 years old. You know, that sort of thing. I was just like, very, very true. And, and you know, going to um, Yale, you know, when I was in law school was, in a very different way, but also the exact same way as Brett. I mean, it was utterly fish out of water. And my entire life, I really have had like imposter syndrome. Like, I don't belong here quite literally, right? Like, I look different. You know, in, in Georgia, where I grew up, I was the, my brothers and I were the only Chinese people in our entire um, elementary school. And, you know, people didn't know what to do with me because they'd never seen Asian black hair before. And like a daily basis, people would pull my hair out so they could have a piece of it because they ne they weren't trying to be oh, wow. necessarily. They just had never seen black hair that looked like mine. They'd seen black hair and they'd seen straight hair, but they'd never seen hair that looked like mine. And like I was like an experiment to them. And growing up like that, you know, can really instill a lot of imposter syndrome, which is partly why I like to be vulnerable about the things that I've had to go through because, you know, I sort of felt like you were on the outside every day of my life and probably still to this day. And, and so many people can easily look at my life and be like, there's no way you've ever felt like an outsider. And I'm like, actually, to the contrary, I feel like an outsider every single day. And I think that again, that, that humanness allows everyone to be, be at the same place when we start talking about these cases. And that was kind of a totally unexpected, amazing thing that came out of the podcast within the first couple months is the emails we got. Yes, we get a lot of true crime related emails or like emails about cases we've done, but I was totally floored by the amount of emails we got from people bearing their souls to us um, mm. that had nothing really to do about true crime, but had to do with about, you know, maybe a story that we told where we were vulnerable or something about the case that we talked about that really struck a chord with them postpartum depression or um, living a double life or waking up one day and realizing the person that you had slept next to for 20 years was was a monster and you mm -hmm. didn't know, you know, and and sharing these stories with us and they didn't actually know us. And many of these, you know, stories would come out with, I've never told anyone this before, but I feel such a weight being able to say it to you. And it was such an incredible honor to be on the receiving end of that, that I think from then on, if I had any reservation about being vulnerable on the podcast, it kind of went away because I, I'm not doing it for the naysayers. I'm doing it for those people who are just as vulnerable to back to us. Maybe not in a public way, but the way they they are able to kind of open their souls to us is is just something that I don't take lightly, and I think has been a, a real privilege to be you know connecting with so many people around the world who trust us with their stories. It, it sort of helps you see that everyone has some hurt and everyone has some fear and everyone has, you know, uh, to some extent, right? Like 
feels on on the outside in ways that uh, I, I at least in my own life there were definitely moments where I thought I I was terminally unique, right? Like I, I was, <laughs> and it's it's interesting to hear other people's stories and see sort of like the the power of that. But it, it sounds like Alice, at least you now have a community that you're definitely on the inside of. Uh, Fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I just I, I want to you know Alice said something in one of our episodes about how the one of the things that unites us is we all suffer you know suffering is sort mm-hmm. of a universal thing and yeah. you know that's another example of that sort of vulnerability you talk about being willing to say that because it is so that is such an opposite of our social media culture our social media culture is project happiness and perfection at all times, mm-hmm. you know, like curate your Facebook pages, use the right filters on Instagram, like whatever it is. And you talk about the, I think we need community <laughs> in our country and probably just in our entire world more now than ever, because so many of the traditional communities people relied on have broken down. Falling apart. We just don't yeah. have them. And people are so isolated and alone. And why is depression surging? Why are people, why is suicide surging? You know, people feel so isolated and alone. And if we do in this podcast, look, the pie, it's crazy. Okay. It's just, it's insane. We never imagined. I mean, I thought maybe one day, you know, maybe we'll do this. It'll be really successful. And a lot of people will listen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Never imagined the community aspect of it. Mm. And for me, as long as that exists, like, I don't care. Like if the numbers level off and, you know, we stop growing and we're no longer in the top, whatever, and we get surpassed by somebody else. As long as we have that community that is engaged and involved the way it is now, I will do this as, as long as they'll have us. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. If that makes sense. What a, for you, Brett, like I haven't really asked you about what growing up was like for you and kind of, and I guess Alice, I didn't really ask you this piece of it, but what led you on the path to where you are today? So that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a deep question. Um, so I grew up in like Appalachia, Alabama, coal area. Um, the, the, where I lived was basically coal mines and textiles. Mm. And as I, and that's what everybody did. And as I grew up, you know, the textile mills closed and the, and the coal mines closed down and it was replaced with a lot of poverty, a lot of drugs, you know, that sort of typical sort of opioid methamphetamine, that story that you see in so many little counties around the country. And I was, you know, went to sort of a failing top school, public school situation. And my parents, I was one of those lucky, blessed, privileged, whatever word you want to use, kids who like my parents were solidly sort of middle class, you know, and because what's your, what your, what your parents do? My dad was a, was an engineer with the power company. He was an electrical engineer and he, and my mom was a secretary at the power company and that's how they met. So they got mm-hmm. married and, and then my mom basically after at some point kind of, I mean, she, she became a stay at home mom, but she would work for a while in places um, but you know, unlike my dad who stayed in one job, she would kind of move around, do different things, try different things. Uh, but that's what they did. And so they were always very sort of engaged in education as outside of school because the school, like I remember getting to high school and didn't really understand how to add and subtract positive and negative numbers. Like I remember that being like a big challenge in high school and just didn't realize that for most of the kids, because I went to a city school for high school, which was a big deal, you know, in the South, we go to the city school, it's a big deal. Like I was going to the <laughs> county schools and I moved up to the city school where all the rich kids were and was just so far behind. I was just so far behind and I couldn't really comprehend how much, how far I was behind. And I look back on this as just, man, most of the people I went to school with were so handicapped by that, right? Like they just... They just didn't have an opportunity. And, and I think about this a lot, I'm kind of rambling now, but I think about this a lot when you think about education writ large and just how early in life people are, their destiny becomes almost kind of locked in stone, sad. right? Yeah. And it is sad. And I don't really know what to do about it, but nevertheless, that's sort of how it went. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you're when you're a kid in a place like that and, and you want to sort of get out of it, I don't know why this is. 
I assume this is most people's experience in sort of places like that. If you're if you're going to get out, there are only two jobs anybody thinks of, and it's doctor and lawyer. Like, doctor and lawyer, doctor right. or a lawyer. You know, it, it's like you're either going to work in the coal mines or you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, and there's no in between, right? <laughs> <laughs> so true. Right. So in my mind, that was. Or in thing. Alice's family, it might just be doctor. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Actually, true. That's very true. <laughs> yeah, and so basically, my whole life, I was just like, I, I'm going to be a lawyer, and so that's so I. Just just sort of like slept walked right into it, you know, and I'm glad I did, I guess. But it's just funny to think about how that happens. It was either I didn't really like science. So I was going to be a doctor. Or I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> so it's going to be a doctor, lawyer, or coal miner. That was pretty much. I remember one time we had like a career day at my elementary school and the, and the, it was like the guy who owned the local convenience store came and like one oh, wow. of the textile mills came and and the coal company came and they were they were that asking the kids and that was it and they were asking oh, the wow. kids like you know what do you want to do when you grow up you know do you want to work at mike's store you know <laughs> some people raise their hand there's like what about at the eagle shirt factory and some other people raise their hand and what about the coal company and uh, most people raise their hand and want to work in the coal company and it's just sort of that was the horizon you know, that was just what you, that was your horizon. That was yeah. what you were going to do. And I don't know. I, I just sort of lucked into where I am, basically. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Alice? What, uh, what, what set you on that, this path? Yeah, never in a million years thought I would be a lawyer, um, partly because I didn't know any lawyers, you know, growing up and not a, not a joke, you know, the, the community we were in, I, my, my mom stayed at home and my mom, and dad really hardly spoke English, like in their outside lives. They didn't never felt confident speaking English. And so um, for from the very beginning, really, when I was a small child, I didn't speak English until, you know, the first grade. And I always had to be kind of the translator for my parents, even starting at age six or seven, when we mm. went to the grocery store, when we went to the bank, when we went to, you know, do anything. So you um, sort of had to grow up fast in a way that the rest of us didn't, yeah, right? To yeah, deal with absolutely. adult. And, and not just in the language, but to explain like this, this American society to them, like mm. what government systems were and, and, you know, I had to kind of, ex and I, and now as an adult think back, I, I can't imagine moving away from everything I know at the age of like 30 and starting over. And they did that. For what, me, why did know. they do it? Uh, they did for it for us. Okay. Yeah, they absolutely did it for, you know, me and my siblings for us to, live the American dream. You know, they, they truly believed in the American dream and they just wanted a better future than they had, um, for us. And I can't believe it, but like we, we are the American dream. Right. And we had a very limited path if they stayed, um, where they were. My, my dad grew up dirt poor, quite literally dirt poor. They only had dirt, um, as their floors. And he would tell me about how he would be so hungry that he would, you know, basically take a potato and they didn't have enough money to buy coal to build a fire. And so he would bury it deep into the ground and like throw a hot rock in there with it and wait for it. Oh, wow. Like days, right? I mean, this is, wow. this is real life. And, and he would share that um, potato with his sister and his brother and they would split it and not want to tell their parents that they were hungry because of course they knew, you know, their parents were hungry too. And my mom would tell similar stories. You know, they, they really had nothing. My grandparents lived in pre-communism China. And so they were refugees who went to Taiwan and my mom, you know, she had a bright personality, but she was, you know, uh, the youngest girl of, of, of six kids and there was never enough food to go around. And so she would just go to restaurants and eat condiments like ketchup. You know, there wasn't oh, ketchup wow. in Taiwan, but she would do that so that she wouldn't be hungry. And that was how they grew up. I mean, truly with nothing. And then here I am in, you know, absolute luxury in, in relation. And I knew this at like age six, at age seven. And all I knew was I had to, I had to succeed, not in the sense of like success of the world, but like they gave up everything mm. for me to have a chance at education. And I had to do well educationally, right? They, their sacrifice was not going to be for naught. And that's why- It I mean, sounds like a, a, a big weight to carry. 
Oh, it's a huge weight. <laughs> it's, it's a it's an absolutely huge weight, and and you know I, I thank them for that. It you know I never did I have to be told to study or or to do well. They they didn't even know I applied to colleges because they didn't understand the college system. Oh, I really? didn't know the American college oh, system, and you know. So they all- came wanting something better for you, but didn't exactly know what it was, but knew it was an America kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. They didn't know. They didn't have the blueprint. They just knew. Uh-huh. That people who went to America were not bound by the family they were born into or, you know, you weren't you could be anything in America is what everyone knows. And I have, you know, cousins and family in like four continents and many of them want to live in America. And it just Mm -hmm. happened that I was so lucky to be born here. And that's partly why, you know, I'm such an advocate for like the American way, because I, I should be nothing in a lot of ways. And I, I see kind of the parallel lives that my you can imagine have. yourself. Yeah. yeah I, I see what it could be. Um, and I'm not any smarter than my cousins. I'm not any, you know, more cunning or anything like that. I, I really was just able to do things and not limited by kind of what I look like or who my parents were, which is to say that they weren't educated in the American way. They couldn't advise me on what college to go to or what law school to go to because they didn't know, right? They don't know what the LSAT is. They don't know right. what the SAT is. They don't know what the ACT is. And so I would study for it, drive myself to those tests. And then if I did well, it's not like anyone clapped me on the back because they couldn't even understand what it meant to do well in them, which was good because you shouldn't be doing those things for for outside validation. But you know, I, I am so lucky because I, I chose, you know, people say, oh, how did you choose the college you went to? And the honest to God truth was that I knew my parents couldn't afford it. And so I needed to just go to a college that that I could afford. And they <sighs> gave me a full ride. And that was the only metric I had. It was not because it was the best school. It was not because it was a small liberal arts college. And I didn't want to go to a big state school. It had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the fact that if I went there, they would have enough money to basically allow my brother to maybe choose a school that he wanted to go to because he was younger <clears> than me. You know, I, I didn't know anything at 17. And I was lucky enough that the school I went to was the exact place I was supposed to go to. And I can't believe, you know, how much free education they gave me. And I, I'm so thankful for that. And to be totally honest, that's how I picked law schools, too. I, I didn't actually know about rankings back then. So you went to Yale by mistake? <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? I mean, it was out of a lot of ignorance. I, I actually didn't know these things. Of course, I'd heard of the name Yale. I'd heard of the name Harvard. Uh, but like, I didn't actually know. No one told me it was supposed to be hard to get in. Right. And that's just the, that's the yeah. truth. And so I didn't know it was supposed to be hard. And, and I think that was a gift in a lot of ways. But so it's almost like your parents, like running a relay race, they did the first leg, then passed the baton to you to run. And you're kind of probably doing that for your kids. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me to think that 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 decision they made means you don't have to cook that potato in the dirt. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And um, again, I mean, part of sharing these stories is that I I think a lot of people have stories that they can also, even if it's not about cooking a potato in the dirt, it's something that was overcome that seemed insurmountable, but they're able to do it. Right. And it's possible. And that's actually an interesting thing about the the space that you're in that I think people don't really think about. I, I don't know whether you guys share this opinion on it, but I find there's more hope than you would expect in true crime or and in the criminal justice system, like that story Brett was telling before. You know, I think of some of my clients who've gone to jail and it, you know, some it doesn't work out very well. Some it really does turn around their lives. That there's probably more more hope in some of these things than, than people realize. Well, I think I think one thing that's interesting about true crime, and, and some of this is overblown, but it is one of the few areas where the listeners can't actually make a difference. You know, I mean, you can, you can listen to political podcasts and wrap yourself around an axle, or you can listen to like science podcasts or medical podcasts, and they're all interesting. News podcasts, they're interesting, but your ability to really affect any of that is not that great. Whereas in true crime, there are occasions where true crime coverage of cases has led to breaks in cases. Occasionally, we will get tips that we'll pass on the law enforcement. 
as far as I know, none of them have, you know, led to a, a case being solved. But I mean, there's been some that I thought were pretty good. Right. And those were things that the people until they heard the show never even realized might be important. And now they're talking to the FBI. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's one one area is it feels like when you talk about these cases, it's like Delphi. You know, Delphi was this horribly tragic, awful case. And just people just wanted that case to be solved so badly, you know, and and it looks like maybe it was right. And somebody's been arrested and they may or may not have confessed. And that sort of catharsis that you have or something that you have been following and been involved in for so long, all of a sudden there's actually closure. There's actually a hope for a just outcome. I mean, that that is a, a hopeful part of it. Powerful piece of it. Yeah, I I had heard recently, and this might be apocryphal, but it was something like more than 30 missing or not. Yeah, uh, unidentified uh, missing people have been identified through the website Web Sleuths. And then I think of, you know, the Kristen Smart case, um, who was a student out in California who was killed, the podcaster, oh, Chris Lambert did a podcast that investigated her death and that led to the conviction of, I think, Paul Flores. Like, you know, I take your point. There is really an opportunity for not just, I mean, the podcasters and the listeners to help. And I I can't even remember where I heard this, but I heard a story recently about uh, somebody who had a important piece of information as a witness that didn't even realize that there was a crime until they heard about it on a podcast. And, they were able to contribute. So, yeah, I, you know, I agree with you on the catharsis piece of it. I agree with you. You know, just as somebody, you know, when I was when I was younger, hmm, let's see, I probably would have been like four. I am um, one day came home, was driving with my parents, came home, and my mom was at the neighbor's house. And then we all went over to the neighbor's house. And what I had found out was that the husband of my neighbor had been killed and he worked in Washington, DC and somehow he ended up in a car with some other people. They, they still haven't figured out uh, the case, but he was shot in his car and left on the side of the road. And that case never being solved that there's just something that's empty or missing that I think people have a hard time you know, I was I was young and didn't know them well, but I think of the family. I have a hard time understanding how important that is for people to have some kind of, not just resolution to it, but some understanding of how we are where we are, right? Or why we haven't convicted or charged X, Y, or Z. Just having some understanding of what's happening, I think, can be cathartic for people. Does that make sense? I think it makes perfect sense. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, missing person cases are so difficult for family because, you know, you never, you never want to say, you never want to say that it would be better to know that somebody is, is, is dead. Right. I mean, that seems crazy to even say, but when you have someone who's missing, they've been missing for a long time and, and missing under bad circumstances, you, you never are able to, to come to terms with that in any way, you know, you're not able to really grieve for them. You're not, there's no grave you can go to. There's no memorial service. And there's always that nagging hope that maybe this will turn out to be like, you know, the case in Cleveland where the, the, the women, those, those ladies were kept for in the basement. Decades. Exactly. Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden they're, they're back. Right. I mean, right. you're always hoping that. And, but just the constant not knowing, I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons those cases are so terrible. And I think you're hundred percent right. I think that just, even if you never get justice, you know, just, just knowing what happened and, and being able to sort of, you know, start to deal with that, I think is important. So Brett, can we talk horror novels? <laughs> Cause how do we go from, I'm going to be a coal miner or a lawyer to a writer? <laughs> I, I don't, am the true Renaissance man. Right. I know everybody knows this, but he truly is. <laughs> it's I completely agree with you. Um, so I, you know, I mentioned it in the intro, but you were a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award, which is, if you don't know, it's one of the you know, it is the highest rated or highest uh, highest award for horror writing. What, how? 
how do we get there? Philosopher, lawyer, <laughs> writer. Yeah, yeah. Twice nominated, actually. Just want to put oh, that. congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, humble. <laughs> it's an honor to be nominated. Can't say I won, but that's okay. uh, I, liked, I mean, I'm a storyteller. I like telling stories. I mean, I think that's at the end of the day. That's just what it is, right? It's a very sovereign thing. <laughs> yeah, it's one reason I think the podcast works, is I like to tell stories. Alice puts up with me telling stories. Alice is a great storyteller too. And she's it's it's funny how we compliment each other on the show, but I don't know if Alice has ever written any horror novels. Um, nope, I just, not, you know, not a single one. So <laughs> Maybe I next. Love, I love mystery and I love like the paranormal. I mean, it's all kind of comes together, really. I yeah, you it. did the nonfiction book, right? On yeah. Tuscaloosa Paranormal. Yeah. yeah, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list actually. Yeah, and history. I mean, I just love how all that stuff comes together. And, and horror, in particular, the kind of stuff I was writing was very sort of like that. <laughs> and I just liked doing it and did it for a while. The horror community is small but passionate. And it was always fun sort of to be a part of that. Really was kind of writing right up until we started the podcast. And now the podcast has sort of devoured all my <laughs> But I do hope to one day go back and finish some of the stuff i was working on we'll just have to see i guess <laughs> the um yeah no i as a kid that, that's actually what got me and it's very funny because i think horror is what got me into reading reading is what got me i don't know to to where i am in life right because reading got me to thinking <laughs> and, and thinking got me to probably not making a lot of stupid decisions that some other people in my life may have Made, don't get me wrong, I've made plenty of stupid decisions, we all know that, but <laughs> but their consequences are less because of the education and the, and all of those um, other pieces. So you you will go back to horror writing, Alice, you will not be horror writing, or you will? <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I would be the world's worst horror writer. <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> because I can't even like pretend to think about it or I'll get too scared. <laughs> Have you read Brett's books? No, I haven't. And you know that shows you just how scared I am because I love Brett. It would support him in anything. I buy his books. You buy them? <laughs> That's too funny. So no Stephen King for you? That's not no, what I should send this I, to I, I mean, it, it really is. Like people who, you know, we told nobody about our podcast who still to this day I get texts from people who I've known for a long time that say, are you kidding me? You have a podcast? They laugh that it's on true crime because, like, I really, you know, I actually, I'm the biggest weenie in the world. You know, I'm I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of my own shadow. Um, so it's really strange that I actually, you know, became a prosecutor. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I kind of picked up the clue one time when I was watching one of your lives, and you had like the three baby monitors, or was it the two baby monitors? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> this woman is not going to miss anything. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I don't sit by I don't sit by like windows that don't have a shade on them because looking in and they're they're gonna like you know shoot me through the window. I just know it. <laughs> well, that's actually a really interesting point. I wonder how like being involved in the prosecution side of the criminal justice system impacts sort of like your daily living. I think about it from the perspective of like being a reporter. When I was by the time I was twenty seven, like my therapist made me go back and count. Like, how many dead bodies had you seen, right? So it was like 270 oh, wow. and that I could remember. So she made the point. She's like, hey, the first point that she made was really good. She's like, that's a lot of unnatural death. And I know it seems kind of, like, obvious, but it, like, dawned on me in that moment, oh, everybody doesn't go through this. And then her next point was, and you think that somehow didn't impact your life. And I was like, huh. Valid point. But, but like, I literally, I walk around my building and think about the schoolgirl in New York who was just walking by her building and the brick fell off and hit her on the head and killed her. But like, I definitely walk around buildings slightly different than other people. How do you, how do you think that impacts you guys being involved in this kind of stuff? Well, you know, I was joking that it it seems strange that I would become a prosecutor, but I think in a lot of ways, it's the uncontrollable world, the chaos that is most scary to me. And by being a prosecutor, by being an attorney, I can do something about it. And 
by being able to like actually, you know, have agency in, in the chaos, I think helps me. Um, and so it, it, it doesn't, I'm not scared when I'm doing my cases, right? And, and it's some of the most horrendous things I've ever seen. And I think it's because there's actually something I can do about it. It's a puzzle that I have to, you know, figure out of how to move forward with the case or what's missing in the case or what happened in the case, as opposed to being just a, a something when I'm just sitting back watching a movie, a horror movie, for uh-huh. example. It's happening to me. As we a- have no control, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so I think I see the world with much bigger eyes and I, I am not as naive as I once was, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I don't live in like constant anxiety or fear because you can't do that. Right. Right. It's it's more like you just, you, you, it's good to know what the world is, but you know, people call me Pollyanna. I'm a very by nature optimistic person and by nature kind of like a a happy, joyful person. And I hope to never lose that. If I were to lose that, then I think I have to kind of reevaluate what I'm doing in life. um, Because I think you can be that while still recognizing the the depravity really of humanity mm-hmm. um and it's a difficult balance but you you have to to know how to how to reach that balance it's interesting because one of the second things that those 270 dead bodies did for me in addition to like walking around buildings in a different way is it also reminded me that life is unbelievably precious and that i can't spend my entire life worrying about what bad thing is going to happen because life could be short. So Mm. I need to enjoy every moment. And then I think the other piece of it that really was impactful in a positive way is you guys know my general life story is that things that used to really upset me, you know, like unless you're going to kidnap the kids or my cat, I am going to bounce off it. And I think that those two things have been helpful from that, that experience. How about you, Brett? How does it impact you? So I think I, the longer I've been involved in, in this kind of stuff, the more it humanizes people for me who are involved in crime. And I remember one of the sort of eye-opening experiences for me, I had started off as a civil litigator. I was at a big firm for a year, hated it, <laughs> and then went and clerked for a couple judges for like three years or so, did a stint in politics, and then came back and, and started doing criminal law. And the I was doing appeals, and I was doing sort of like high-level appellate work, and I had a, one of my first death penalty cases, did several death penalty cases. And one of them and they're all terrible. I mean, they're just death penalty cases. People cannot comprehend how awful the facts are in death penalty cases. <laughs> and this one was a guy had brutally murdered his grandparents, stabbed him to death, cut his grandmother's throat. Her last words to him oh were, I love you, son, right before she killed him. Or he killed oh, my him. God. I mean, just awful, right? I mean, just can't yeah. even comprehend how terrible it was. And he did this with his girlfriend. They did it together. Oh, and wow. they did it because they wanted money for drugs, basically. And their addiction to methamphetamine had begun. She had had, she had miscarried. So she'd been pregnant. She miscarried and from, and it apparently devastated both of them. And they just like buried themselves in drugs. Right. And then at some point that became, they were going to commit this murder. And I remember I was flipping through the, the um, case file and like, out falls a Polaroid picture and I picked it up and it was a picture of her when she was pregnant and Mm. just like the look on her face. I mean, you know what you expect to see from a pregnant woman beaming, you know, and just thinking like how, how it went from that to she's now in prison for the rest of her life, life without parole. And he's, he's on death row. And this is basically his last appeal. And if I win this appeal, he's probably going to be executed at some point. And just like, you know, if you had just told me the story, the facts before I even started this, if you just told me the facts, guy brutally murders his grandparents, I would be like, oh, that's okay. Well, you know, that's exactly what that point is for. Line him up. <laughs> exactly. Move him, move him up in the line. We need to do this. And, and you know, and, and, 
and I still think given what he did, that's, that is, that is just, but seeing that, that human side of it really affected me then and continues to. And I will tell you like, and I think a lot of people feel this way. I think, I think when people, when people think of prosecutors, they think of, like I said before, they just want to win. They don't care. But I think there's a lot of sort of, I think people empathize, prosecutors empathize more with the defendants than you would expect. Mm. You know, I had a trial last week and we won. And when the verdict was coming down, you know, I was happy that we won, but I immediately was thinking about what was next for these people, you know, who, you know, and how it goes is when you get convicted, they come in and they put the cuffs on you, you know, like you walked in a free person and now you're going, you're going off immediately. And that is something I always want to hold on to because I think it's so important to, to always remember the humanity of everyone you deal with in life. And like we were saying earlier, are there some monsters? Sure. Like the guy, the Lisk guy, Oh yeah. Girl killer yeah. monster. Yeah. Right? right. But he is, he is such a like figure of, of attention because of how unusual he is. Mm-hmm. Most people, whatever they're doing, whatever your disagreements are with them, however you're different from them, you know, they're human too. They're struggling too. They've gone through a lot of things too. Even if the things that they ended up doing were really bad, you should always remember that. It's I guess that's, that's what I think of. Yeah, it's more likely to be like that story of the the couple on meth than it is to be the Long Island serial killer or uh, the guy in Idaho. Right. I assume he did it. Yeah, right. And, and is that for you guys, uh, Alice Brett, is, is it important to you? Because one of the things I've noticed in your podcast is you have compassion for the perpetrators of the suspected perpetrators, which was another surprise to me. It was like, here are these prosecutors talking very like, you know, because you analyze sort of the logical likelihood of something happen, which requires you to go into their behaviors and who they are and, you know, what they may have been thinking. And I was like, wow, these people are compassionate toward everyone in these stories. Well, you know, so in, a really impactful class for me in law school was a class on death penalty. Um, and it was from the perspective, actually, that, you know, the death penalty, how how difficult the question of death penalty is. And on the very first day of class, this is like a famous class at Yale and it's taught at Harvard, too, in the sense that people clamor to take this class because it is such a good class. And on the very first day, um, the professor says, you know, you are not defined by your worst day or the worst thing you've ever done. And that's true for everybody. We um, in prosecution see people probably at their worst, right? They have done something uh, or they're alleged to have done something that lands them in our life of uh, investigation or prosecution. But that act does not define them. Just like no act in your life or my life defines who I am as a human being. And, you know, it can go into your character and whatnot. But there's people are so much more complex than that. And also, we all are capable of doing things that we think are impossible, right? People always say, oh, I would never do that. And simply the circumstances aren't right. And we see that a lot with our defendants. And we've just seen it too many times to be able to put people just in buckets of you're a monster or you're not. That's just Mm -hmm. not true. People are nuanced and they're complex and circumstances are complex. And that's, it's, you can't honestly do this job and and not be able to see that. Um, it would be disingenuous. Um, so the compassion is real because we see it every day. And, you know, I've never high-fived anyone, for example, after a conviction, whether it was trial or they pled guilty, because it's a very complex emotion, even as the prosecutor. It can be sad too, right? Uh, it's, it's incredibly sad because most, many, if not most, of the defendants um, that I see, like, they are smart. They are so smart. That's how they, like, did the conspiracy that they're being, you know, convicted <laughs> of. And I'm like, wow, like, you have this incredible mind and you actually, I could see a totally different life for you. And the kids that you have could have a dad or a mom in their life. And you can, you can, like, you can invent 
apple, you know, with, with the brain that you have and your life circumstances have you taking a very different path. And that makes me very sad because it's not just the one person who um, is convicted and goes off to prison. I mean, oftentimes mm-hmm. they have a lot of people who love them and even depend on them and their life is probably altered forever. Yeah. That reminds me, I don't know if you guys know the story of uh, Willie Boskett, who is this um, New York kid who, in sort of like a three strikes you're out situation, he ended up in like life in prison for, I I don't, it, it was like a robbery plus a something, plus something that involved like assault. And he ultimately ended up murdering, I think, a couple people in prison. But it was the interesting thing for me is he could have been anything. He could have been an innovator. He could have been a lawyer. His father, who also had become a criminal, could have also been a professor or whatever it is. And it's hard sometimes, I think, to see that potential that people have, like thinking even about, you know, the Alec Murdoch case. He had the potential to do so much good in what he was doing as an attorney. And you know, all that smarts that allowed him to get away with something for so long, if it had been pointed in a different direction, not to say I have a tremendous amount of compassion for him, but I do have some, anything that's going to drive you to do something like that, people that you love. But so many of these people have so much, so much potential. I was going to ask you guys before we wrapped up, like, are there cases or things in your work, whether it's the podcasting or law like that, what are the things that have been most meaningful for, for the two of you, whether it's a case or something else? Hmm. Most meaningful. Most meaningful across our lives? Like anything? Yeah. yeah. Can be definitely not, definitely yeah. not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk to me. Family, having children. Like what has been the most impactful thing for you guys? Well, I'm totally stereotyped when it comes to having kids like all the stereotypes about how your whole life changes your perspective changes all of that is i mean it is there is it is a demarcation in my life between before i had kids and after i had kids and i don't even know i don't even really know what i did before i had kids i'm, I'm a complete mm-hmm. i'm just a i am 100 a dad stereotype i love my kids more than anything like to me you know i mean you know jason you and I, I feel like we 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 have some things in common. We both had some yeah, things that so. kind of went wrong at times. <laughs> and for me, like I wouldn't change anything about my life because everything that happened led to having my today. kids when I had my kids, right? Mm-hmm. And like just wouldn't change anything because it's the most important thing. So for me, I mean that is without question the the most impactful thing that's happened. But I will say this. You know, other than that, and that is like outweighs so many things. This podcast that we're doing together, I never thought it would be as impactful as it has been or as like life changing as it has been. But I mean, it is. I mean, it is it is just it is easily it is one of the most important things in my life. I absolutely love it. I love doing it with Alice. It's such a blessing. It's just sort of mind blowing how how amazing it has been and you know that may sound cliche but it just everything we've talked about tonight it all sort of comes together in this and i'm just really glad we're doing it i feel just incredibly blessed that we that alice and i basically just stumbled into this because that's that's what happened we just stumbled in right it sort of brings together all those things that you value that are really important to you yeah and yeah and all the things that you're interested in how about you alice yeah, since, I mean, I can't not say my kids now that Brett said it was his kids. So. <laughs> I mean, you could. Definitely my kids. No, uh, I mean, obviously, it's everyone who hears about, you know, long careers and how hard we've worked to, you know, go to the schools that we went to and have the careers we have. I think Brett was completely right. It's not work, right? And if it is work for you, it, it might be a good time to take a step back because for me, it would be relationships. And it's relationships through work, through the podcast, through my family that I feel so, like, just so abundantly blessed. I can't believe the people that I am blessed to know and love in my life and the mm-hmm. most un- from the most unexpected places. And the podcast is one of those. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not kidding when I say Brett is like 
my best friend. I would take a bullet for him. And getting to do the podcast with him is, is it's not like we, you know, we're not like in sync. We like audition for a podcast and they just happened to uh, pick us because we had great chemistry. Like we really are great friends. Right. <laughs> and, and that's why it works. And if we weren't great friends, this wouldn't work because honestly, anything that takes time away from my kids, it has to have a high bar. Right. Mm. And hanging out with like my friend, Brett absolutely meets that bar. And as a result, like our families get to hang out so much and we would hang out anyways, but like our kids don't know what a podcast is. They're too young, but they like love the theme song and they like <laughs> do it. And you know, when, whenever they hear, hear the podcast or something, you know, they'll, they're, they'll hear a snippet and they immediately like, Oh, is Mr. Brett here? You know, they get so excited that Mr. Brett's at their house and oh, sorry, it's podcast. I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, it's too much. I can't answer that question right now. Is that why uh, you guys did the April Fool's episode of just the intro song? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's the best episode ever. Ever? Nobody was fooled. So I don't know what you're talking about, Jason. Uh, it was about, I don't know, like five minutes in, I was like, these people. <laughs> <laughs> At first, I was like, is something wrong? <laughs> Everything was right, Jason. Everything was right. I enjoyed it. I found it quite funny. <laughs> um, but but truly, it, it's just being being blessed beyond belief um, that we get to, to have careers that we find fulfilling. And also, like, our hobby, which is the podcast, has just been a... a you know, portal into a world I never thought I would get a view into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I wanted to just give you guys, before we wrap up, and this has been an awesome conversation, I mean, I feel like it's so important to give people an idea of of, of sort of like the power that true crime uh, community can have on, you know, cases and lives the power of sort of building a community period. And then also, you know, about the, the roles of prosecutors and how they sort of fit into our system. But I wanted to give you guys a chance to just sort of offer up any closing thoughts about what you, in any of these areas, what you think is really sort of important for people to kind of take away. Cause I, I heard a lot of good themes you know, and not the least of which is the importance of having a community, like thinking about what you guys said, Alice, that for you, in many ways, you didn't have one when you came and you built one. And Brett, that's one of your things that's, you know, one of your favorite things here. So if you guys have any closing thoughts, you can go for it and whichever order you want. Jason, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the the conduit by which we are getting to do this is true crime, but we just need to be able today as a society to talk to each other, to share ideas, to debate respectfully, and to refine each other's thinking with using our brains. We all have brains, and it's such a beautiful thing when you're able to have an honest conversation, whether you agree or disagree with someone else. And it's something that we've been able to do through the podcast. We see our community doing it without us, you know, and it really heartens me for the future. You know, a a bunch of people will just be naysayers and say, we don't talk to each other anymore. And that might be the case, but I see so many pockets where there is honest dialogue in everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about true crime. I'm talking about life. You know, it's within your own family. It's with your significant other. It's with your friends. It's with your kids. It's with people you've never met on the internet. We are all human. We are all, you know, in this life together and we get this one life and it matters. um, and, And every moment matters. And we can choose to kind of take away from it or add to it. And I hope that, you know, the time that people choose to listen to our podcast is adding to it and that we're talking about something so much more than just true crime. It, it right. goes far beyond that. Uh, it goes back to the very humanity of each person and the dignity of each person and our ability to communicate with other humans in our life. And I, I feel blessed to be part of those dialogues, you know, often uh, through the podcast. And I hope others um, are able to kind of join us for the ride and then extrapolate from the podcast to the rest of their life as well. Right. That makes perfect sense. Brett, 
Yeah, and always hard to follow up Alice because she puts everything so wonderfully. And the, community, <laughs> the community is so important to me. I'll take a different tack just so I don't say the same thing over again. When we started this, one of the reasons we started it was that void, the sort of that the, there wasn't this viewpoint. And one thing that we have always tried to reinforce, and one thing that I hope that comes through, is the country we have, the system we have, justice. Getting here, getting to a place where we can have, for instance, a murder trial where someone who the vast majority of people in the public have already made a decision that they're guilty, where they can not only get a fair trial, but can be acquitted. Getting to that point was the work of generations, hundreds of years, thousands of years, built on a lot of trial and error and a lot of injustice and a lot of terrible things. And I hope that people can see sort of when they see a little bit of our side of things, a little bit of the prosecutor side of things that maybe they weren't seeing before, that it can give them a little bit of assurance that it's not as bad out there as you think it is. It doesn't mean things are perfect. It doesn't mean things can't be improved. That's how we got where we are, is working on things, working together to figure out where things are going wrong, to fix those things, to strengthen what we already had. Don't tear it down. There's, you know, so much good out there and so much positivity and we can build on that to have an even better and a more just society in the future, which I think is what we all want to do. Right. That makes perfect sense. Well, I'm glad we have people like you too in the world. So I think, you know, to all of the points that you guys are making, I think at its core, the ability to listen to each other to have different perspectives and come together, to have a sense of community and also understand the law because ultimately the rule of law is what brings order to life and allows us to find joy and allows us to not be Russia or some other place. But I'm I'm just glad that we have voices like yours. And more importantly, I'm glad that we have people like you who can be examples for the, the rest of us. So. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.